Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Welcome to our episode called Colossal Devastation in Wine Country. Damn. I know. That's heavy. It's It's heavy right away. It's really heavy. Uh, In light of the recent and ongoing California fires both in Northern and Southern California, we decided, why don't we talk about this? This is affecting one of our favorite places. Wine not. And I think that it deserves some attention. Today, we are drinking Colossal Portuguese Red Blend. And this is from Casa Santos Lima, which we've done before. They make uh, Confidential, which we did in one of our earlier episodes. Episode five. Yeah. So how exciting is that? Anyways, we keep coming back to more. I love Portuguese wine. This one was like $11 or something. I think it can range anywhere from $11 to $13. This is a 2015. Um, In 2017, it was rated one of the top 100 wines. It's just so pretty. I'm just really (laughs) admiring. Oh, yeah, it's really pretty. Yeah, look at that. Um, By Wine Spectator, and it got 90 points. So a little bit about this blend uh, it is a blend of 30% Tariga Nacional, 30% Syrah, 30% Tinto Roriz, and 10% Alcante Bouchette. So we'll get into what all I those are. I have never are. had that one before. Yeah. That last one. Well, cheers. 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 I'm going to swirl a little bit. It smells good. It looks heavy. It smells Syrah-ish. Oh, it smells yeah. so this actually smells amazing. I like it. Nodding the head of approval. Yeah. Oh. Uh, for a $11 bottle of wine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, ABV is 14%. I'm going to talk a little bit about these grapes since they're not usual ones that we hear. And then yeah. a little bit about how they make it. Tariga Nacional is a dark skin grape. And it's very important actually for port wine. So it's extensive in the Douro region of Portugal. Um, it's kind of like... The equivalent of Cabernet for Portugal. Like, I it's like not that the comparison. same grape, but that's like the importance of it. The importance of it, not just that, what it offers. So, it offers uh, firm tannins, dark fruit like blueberry and plum, hints of spice, um, potentially even mint, leather, and violet. These are all kind of things that we look for in Cabernet. And also, usually, Cabernet is a primary blending grape. And this is very much, like much so one. a huge component of their red wines and as well as like i said the port uh so we all know what Syrah is so i'm not is that too wait, much and what's the that. percentage of that one that's 30 percent. that's 30 yeah okay cool mm-hmm. we're 30 30 30 and then 10 percent of this alcante so we know what Syrah is so i'm not going to get too much into that but man this this wine definitely gets the color from Syrah. well it also could get the color from that 10 percent one Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Because that one is a rarity. Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. one's a special one. Sorry, I'm making you jump the gun a little bit. No, it's okay. I like it. 30% Tinto Roriz. Do you know what that is? Tell us. It's actually Tempranillo. Yeah. So it's also known as Aragonez. I guess Tinto Roriz is primarily what they say in Douro Valley. That makes sense. So Tempranillo, we know, is mostly, you see it in a lot of Spanish wines, some Chilean wines. But 
Portugal is actually, actually the second largest producing country of it. And it is also important for port wine production. Okay. So another big one. And we get a lot of like cherry, dried fig, tobacco, spice, cedar. And I, I could get some of that at the end of this, I think. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. The 10%. The unknown. The unknown. The but unknown. Uh, yes, I'm excited about this one. We're going to get to know it. So Alcance Bouchette is actually a cross between Petite Bouchette or Boucher and Garnache or Grenache. Um, Boucher is the person who created it. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like it's kind of like that Pinotage thing. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, it is a red, very red-skinned. Or uh, there's a name for it, the type of wine that it is. Oh, um, it's it like is a, a tenturier. Tentur- tentur- yeah. Grape. And it's widely planted in Spain, Portugal, and France, specifically in the Lagandoc region in mm-hmm. France. So it's really usually a blending grape to improve color. A lot of people like it because it's easy to grow and it gives you a lot of grape. Well, and so, so this is this is again where you get more of the red from the skin, but also from the flesh because the inside mm-hmm. is is red too, which I don't know that I've ever actually seen a grape that that is red flesh. It's red on the inside too. I don't know if I've seen that either. Yeah. They were actually used as table grapes in California during Prohibition. Mmm. Yep. Interesting tidbit. So, so what are the flavors? Like, what do we get from this one? You get black cherry, you get blackberry, plum, black pepper, some sweet smoky flavors. The thing is, is that because it ripens and produces large crops, this can come at the expense of depth and alcoholic strength because it ripens so early. So if you think about the sugars and getting more of that alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to produce quality Alcance Boucher, you really have to be fussy and control the yield. So you're not making They need to be way much. more hands-on than yeah. they are with some other grapes, which are just kind of, I don't want to say that they just leave them on the vines and just say, hey, right. go for it. Um, whereas, you know, like Pinot Noir is a very, is a very particular grape. It's very prone to a lot of different diseases. It's thin-skinned, and so you need to take extra care for it. And yeah. this, I mean... Not for the same reasons, but this is sounding like that same sort of deal with this grape. Yep. Probably another reason why it's less um, prominent. Exactly. Because it's kind of giving us that, again, that color. Yeah. You know, um, and is usually in small amounts. You don't really see it yeah. as a primary grape. Yeah. So that's our blend here. It's very interesting. This is essentially a Portuguese, like, common red table wine. These grapes were destemmed and then they went through pre-fermentation maceration at low temperatures for 24 hours. They did fermentation in 10,000 liter vats. And then after the fermentation, they had prolonged maceration for 15 days. After fermentation? Yeah. It's so interesting. Wait a second. How many days did they have the skins on? This is crazy. Yeah. So... That's a lot of math right there. It is. (laughs) And then the wine aged for eight months in French and American oak. No, I don't know how much percentage new oak they don't tell us. Wow, that's actually really cool. So the pre, the pre fermentation, the low temp stuff for an hour. That's like literally just to pull off tannins and color from the grape skins. If it's below a certain temperature, it's not gonna start fermenting. Right. The yeasts don't start activating or anything. And then they ferment it, and then they do more maceration. Cool. Very interesting, and it's very controlled temperature fermentation as well. Mm Hmm. Yeah. Caso Santo Limas is uh, close to Lisbon. 
you know, they have a lot of vineyards there. They make a lot of wine. If you go onto their website, they have a pretty large profile. They're close to the Atlantic Ocean, um, and they have a rich wine region because they have a diversity of grape varieties. They have vineyards that are planted on, like, gentle slopes. Like I said, they're close to the ocean. And they have, like, nice summer nights and gentle winters, so they get some pretty good grapes because of their climate as well. Sweet. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Oh, and I thought this was interesting. Their soils are mainly clay and limestone from the superior Jurassic period. What? And they have examples of, like, dinosaur like remnants. Wait, what? Sort. Wait, wait. Vestiges of dinosaurs. That's still in the soil? I guess. So we're drinking dinosaurs. We're drinking... I was just going to say, we're drinking wines that have been nutrified <laughs> by, by dinosaurs. Okay. Can we just call this Jurassic instead of Colossal? Jurassic. <laughs> Jurassic Park. Excuse me, pre-Jurassic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought, I was like, I've never read that before. I think this wine Ever. is going to stain my teeth. It might. Okay. It might be that one grape. Yeah, I think so. That's okay. It's worth it. It's worth it. You know, it'll be like, just like you got lipstick on your teeth or something. I don't know. I'm just talking out of my... Anyways. Okay. All right. So any any thoughts? We could come back to the wine flavors, I think. Okay. By comparison to the wine from last week, this, this is much more at my alley. But you and I both really like the bolder, the, bold the bigger red. reds. And I, I, I enjoy this. Yes, I do too. And I think that it doesn't have, I mean, it's very, you do get a sense of that tobacco or um, cedary kind of stuff. It's not You do, it's at the end. It's not overpowering. Right, right. It's just really, it's it's gentle. It's like a gentle giant. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is a big wine. It is very bold. Gentle giant, I like that. Yeah, Um, One thing that I thought was interesting about the Alicante Boucher, or Bouchette, however you want to say it, um, that it said that it recommended pairing that wine with like barbecue and teriyaki and things like that, which I think would be super interesting with this particular wine because it does seem to have like this little extra kind of faux sweetness to it where it's not like an overly drying wine. So I would say that this is off dry. It's definitely not a bone dry wine, but it's, you know, it has like really good texture to it and flavor. Mm-hmm. For sure. We can come back to the flavors we get mm-hmm. at the end, but I totally agree with you. I think the tannins are well-structured. They're there, but They're there. it's, it's like, it's just enough. Mm-hmm. It's like super integrated. It's not anything that's overly grippy. It's just really well, it's like, it finally dusts your mouth. This cool. is my plug for Portuguese wine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I feel like if you're looking for anything in the 10 to $15 window, uh-huh. that Portugal is usually a great place to go because you're probably going to get a good wine as opposed to california california like, you're not gonna you're not gonna get terrible it sounds snooty i get it but like anything less than probably 20 you're risking that's what i'm saying yeah and i feel like with portugal like confidential was a pretty good one mm-hmm. and that was pretty cheap yep that you can find some more quality wines for a cheaper price point i actually areas. think that european wines in general 
can fall well mm, into that category. Uh, France, and I don't uh, know. Sometimes, like that Pouillet Fumé yeah. that we had, that was under... That was 30. Oh, that was it? 30. Oh, I'm thinking, I actually just saw a Pouillet Fumé for $18 at Trader Joe's. Ah, there you go. You can get some good Cote d'Aron. Yeah. Basically, California has a higher price point after which you're going to find really better, much better wines. I do think that other states are going to have things priced a little bit more reasonably and still get a really good quality product. There are these wine regions that sort of fly under the radar. And when things happen there, we don't really find out too much about Mm -hmm. like the goings-ons there as opposed to right here in the U.S. where, you know, we hear about it every day. Right. Which is what we've been hearing about nearly every day for the last week and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I might be flying into those fires. I certainly hope that you won't be. We'll reassess for the next episode. Yeah. But yeah, um, it's, it's actually, so when I was out in Oregon is when the fire started that's out there right now. So we're transitioning into our topic. Yeah. To the so colossal fire that's happening. Colossal is defined as something gigantic in place and time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Totally appropriate then. Yeah. Totally so, appropriate pairing. That's kind of why we chose this for our topic here. Yeah. So All this right. is this is our our, our Kincaid fire is what we're dealing mm-hmm. with right now in well, the not Sonoma just that. region. There's a ton of them, and there's more. Mm-hmm. I'm saying from the wine perspective, oh, yeah. we've got Kincaid. One of them in Northern California is called the Easy Fire, and I don't know why you would name it Easy because I feel like any fire sucks. Um, so where is that? That's in Northern California, like by LA. Oh, that's by yeah. LA. And so the, the fires in Northern California have gotten worse because of the Santa Ana winds, because this is the time of year where they get these huge hurricane force wind gusts that they call Santa Ana. Yes, that's right. And Diablo winds, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I so forgot. that's what's made that worse. But we're talking more about Kincaid because that's what's affecting wine country. And if anyone follows any wineries on Instagram or wherever, you've probably seen that you know they're posting on some people are evacuating and oh they sure as hell better be evacuating yeah i've seen so so many videos um, i believe right now they're at last i checked containment of the kincaid fires at 65 percent. yeah that's much greater than Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. um they feel pretty they feel much better about that can we before we get too into the weeds about kincaid can we talk a little bit about like why are these things happening yeah so, I mean, there are certainly a number of factors. I think that we, oftentimes we think of like these natural disasters, natural factors and things. And, you know, it, we know that it's very, very dry out in California. They oftentimes go through droughts themselves. Yep. I have friends and family that live out there and, you know, they're told that they can't water their lawns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I and have cousins there. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. And so then they just have like these super dry patches like in their yards and it's like, well... That's sort of an accident waiting to happen. You know, you almost hope that like nobody smokes a cigarette. Right. But so that can be one of the reasons. Um, just like the drought, like definitely, I think, weighs into that. But there's also, you know, the climate change. And climate change mean, can mean a lot of things, guys. So it's not like we're just talking about like global warming or whatever, or we're talking about anything that's very specific, but climate change itself. And I think that that has continued to contribute to the presence of these because certain areas have gotten hotter and drier and these states become more and more populated. They're definitely populated. 
Definitely. I mean, California it's is popular. Stunning. It's beautiful too. Oh, it, it it is. But listen, I love California. I will not move there ever. It's a nice place to visit. It's either gonna burn down or it's going to just <laughs> fall separate off. from <laughs> or, the rest or of you, the country. Or you mean secede? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say, can't it also won't eventually like break based upon the fault lines? That, that's or what something? I'm talking about. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, because I was gonna say, haven't they petitioned to like oh, become the United States? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's ridiculous. That too. Yeah. There are. I mean, there's so many different things that happen: fires, earthquakes. There is a recent study that was published by Earth's Future, which I guess is a magazine. Don't know. Blog. Never something? heard of it. Okay. Um, that suggests that the increasing size of wildfires occurring across California in the last 50 years is attributable to climate change, drying out the landscape. So I guess the extent by which or the destruction of these wildfires, most recently like in 2017, 2018, and I'm sure 2019 is going to top that, um, since the 70s has increased fivefold, mostly due to an increase in summertime forest fires. And that's likely driven by, you know, more fuels produced by human-inducing warming. So mm-hmm. we have more people driving, more people camping, more people than cooking out while they're camping. I just heard an advertisement for Smoky Bear. Like, Smoky Bear, do you remember oh, yeah. when we were younger? We yeah. used to see those advertisements all of the time. And there'd be these PSAs in, like, every show, even though we're in the Midwest. And, like, yeah, there's... I mean, there are forests, but like we don't have the droughts or anything that elsewhere in the country have. So, yeah, Smokey Bear is making a comeback. And I'm sure after each and every fire, he comes back with a vengeance and just, you know, is plastered all over everything. He's the bomb. He is the bomb. That's one thing that I think is a contributing factor that's sort of a little bit of both. Yeah. So, like you said, the drought, a moisture deficit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's the difference between the amount of water actually in the atmosphere and the amount of water it can hold has not actually caught up. So there's lower humidity, and this is causes things like brush to dry out faster, and then there's more kindling when there is some sort of instigation for a fire. And basically, when you have something that's like kind of dry next to something that's really dry, and if the yeah. fire itself gets big enough, it doesn't really matter if that is relatively moist. Right. I Moist. <laughs> I, oh, I said actually I said that in the last episode and I was yeah. like she didn't call me <laughs> I didn't I just did though for you I know you did that's <laughs> oh, great oh god mm. yeah so fire season is actually two to three months longer than it was in 1970 that is a long time it's a long like, time I feel like it has to be year round no because I feel like when is California not in a drought when are they not in some sort of like crisis catastrophe yeah and the six most destructive fires in state history have occurred in the last 10 years. And 15 of the 20 largest California fires were in were since 2000. Wow. So, I mean, that really does tell you kind of where what we're dealing with it's here. It's bumping up. It's like each fire tries to outdo the one previous. So that's California. I mean, they happen elsewhere too, which, which we'll definitely get to. And there are other things as well. But so this current one, Kincaid. Yeah. It's pretty rough. It's, it is really rough. Um, um, go ahead. <laughs> go for it. Well, I was going to say, I guess, you know, there are super high temperatures too in California, right? Yeah. And crazy humidity yep. and like crazy nonsense. So in like summer, that. they can go, you know, over 100 degrees and then that Easily. doesn't help. Yeah. Easily. And so because of that, there are like, you know, brownouts and blackouts and things like that. So I guess oftentimes when there are 
very high temps and when they get into these summer months the californians are are pretty you know they kind of have to be ready for temporary electricity shutoffs and so that is to prevent power lines from sparking and i think that not only has to do with high wind conditions like they because obviously those high winds that you described what was it called again santa ana santa ana winds those will carry any spark right the santa ana winds make it even more uh dangerous and so the Santa Ana winds combined with the high temps and combined with all of the power that's needed to power the whole, all of the cities and all the areas because it's much more populous than it used to be, yep. um, it really increases the risk. And so that is, although it's yet to be confirmed, it is the um, anticipated reason why this Kincaid fire started in the first place. Oh, yeah. Which was on October 23rd, so really recent. Yeah. That was actually the day that I flew out to Oregon. <laughs> yeah. And so they've actually had tons of evacuations. There was 200,000 people who had to flee. And they've just, it's already destroyed. I mean, it could be more by the time this comes out. But it's already destroyed more than 280 buildings, including a 150-year-old winery. Really, really sad. This is interesting because it actually originated outside of Geyserville, which is uh, sort of one of the northernmost parts of Sonoma County. If you look on a map, it seems to be well far north of Napa. Yeah. And so Napa, you're not seeing quite as much uh, impact. But I do believe Geyserville is part of Sonoma County. And it sort of creeps up over north of Calistoga. Yeah. Now, even though the fires themselves are not in Napa proper, Napa wineries are actually shutting down because A, their power is shut off. Well, and I'm sure air quality sucks. Well, that's the other thing. And I think also just because, and maybe these guys have more forethought than you may be having to go out <laughs> next uh, week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for fear that those visitors, uh, tourists or other visitors, and even their employees will have to go through these areas to get there. And so they yeah. don't want anybody to have to risk themselves. So I know I've received a crap ton of emails from wineries um, all throughout the region, Sonoma and Napa together and, you know, sort of daily updates, if you will, like we're closed, we're totally fine. Um, The fire's not really close to us, but it's getting closer, you know, all these X, Y, and Z things. And it's really just, I can't even imagine being out there. How scary it must be. No, I think it's super scary. Um, The other thing that impacts the fires that we talked, we talked about the climate, but the other thing is, is that they, um, there's no government greenhouse gas regulations. Oh no, no. Um, so the biggest uh, agriculture is the wine industry. So they're responsible for a significant percentage of the planet warming greenhouse gases that are produced every year there. But I think the Nap there's a Napa Valley Grape Growers, which is Association of Growers and Vineyard Managers, mm-hmm. and they are trying to help um, instill some sort of rules so that they can have a legacy. Because you know, if it's if they don't have government leadership, it really falls on the associations and the people to kind of make a change. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're doing. They're trying to reduce these greenhouse gas emissions. So. Yeah, kind of crazy. It is rough. It is rough. And I think it could be that, the greenhouse gas emissions. It could be, so this was a potential 
this one, this Kincaid fire was a 230,000 volt transmission line failed near the point of origin. And so that was like just before power was going to be shut off. Yeah. Which really sucks because had power been shut off, like they would have been fine. Oh, yeah. God. yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I think, now why PG&E out there is trying to shut everything down so that, which is unfortunate because it's still really fucking toasty out there, all fires aside. Um, but it's really still very warm out there, and so, but that's an attempt to prevent other ones. But there are other fires that can be started by man. Yes. Um, one that I thought was particularly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Is a couple this the things. Oregon thing? This is the Oregon thing. Okay. I'm eager to hear this story. Okay, so in 2017, I don't know the 100% full story, but I have a few tidbits that I found particularly interesting. So in September of 2017, the Columbia River Gorge, so the Columbia. Uh, Valley is a, an AVA that sort of spans, or the Gorge, Columbia Gorge AVA is an AVA that spans Oregon and into southern Washington. So it kind of okay. crosses the border there. But the Columbia River Gorge east of Portland is where this fire started September 2nd. And it was this fucking 15-year-old kid who decided to, I'm going to quote this from an article, Hurled fireworks into a parched canyon near one of Oregon's most scenic hiking trails, which I believe is the Eager River Trail, sparking a cloud of smoke to rise up toward him and his friends. Some in the group reportedly giggled and recorded video oblivious to the danger. Now, the kids are fine. Within four days, okay, so by September 6th, over 30,000 acres of forest had burned. And 700 people had been evacuated. It ended up being over 48,000 acres that were damaged due to the fires. And the kid, a year or I think it was like... Did anyone die? uh, Not that I found. Okay. Thank God. Yeah. But the kid himself was ordered to pay $36 million. How is he going to pay that? He's not. I don't really know what happens with that. Yeah, how does that work? Like does that the mean kid like the, does not have thirty six million dollars. Does the kid doesn't the probably doesn't have a hundred dollars. Does insurance cover? That? I don't know what insurance. I don't know what insurance does this kid have to cover thirty six million dollars. I don't know. I hope he he's fifteen. So I he obviously I don't think he could be held in jail for that long. He should be. Well, then do his parents have to and, Well, his mother, this is the other part that I found was so fascinating. His mother was like, oh, well, he's traumatized by this. Don't you think, like, I mean, affected by this is yes. traumatized? Like, he's traumatized because he did a fucking stupid thing because he wasn't taught any better? Really? You want people to <laughs> Jamie, have sympathy? Jamie, tell us how you really think. Sorry. Oh, snap. Okay. Oh, snap. Now, I will say this, though. So while I was out in Oregon, I mm-hmm. decided to pick up this paper called Willamette Week. Willamette, damn it. Willamette, damn it. So this whole thing was talking about the gorge. And I mean, there are a lot of things in here, but it was talking about this particular fire and how everybody was thought, you know, oh my God, this is so terrible. Like everything is like, of course, you need to contain a fire across this open area where people live. Maybe not many people. Rangers have to, you know, people go camping. So who yeah. the fuck knows who is camping out there? Yeah. Um, people go hiking, all of that stuff. So every a lot of people are in danger. But also all the animals are then displaced. So then what does that do? It then, like, makes the animals go into different places. And that's right. why you find, like, 
bears go into homes and stuff like that, you know? So there are all these trickle effect things that happen. But I will say this article was particularly interesting because they actually mentioned how when it happened, everyone thought that this was the most horrific thing that possibly could have happened. But they said after, you know, this time has gone to sort of clean everything up and get everything under control and whatever, it is actually a... I wouldn't say entirely beneficial situation, but it actually does have benefits to have fires. Yeah, no, it does. That's why they do it on purpose. And there are yes, and there are controlled burns, controlled fires. Exactly. Totally, because it helps turn over soil. Right. And it helps new things grow and create new um oh my god, what's the word? Things in the soil that just make it better to grow. Um it introduces new fuck, what's the word? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's something it's something that they talk about in wine too, but Regardless, yes, it is something that is can be a positive thing. But I feel like that only comes, it's like hindsight's twenty twenty. You only can feel that way once everything is cleaned up, contained, you know, almost like you put a bow on it. And then you're like, huh, actually, okay, it sucked that this happened, but maybe it was really a good thing. I don't know. Yeah. I thought that was interesting about this one. That, that is really interesting. Yeah. Fucking fireworks. $36 million. Kids. So, besides fires, what else does California face? I mean, California, I said before, it's going to break off from earthquakes. Right. (laughs) So, the biggest earthquake that we know of that's affected wine country, and if you watch some of the documentaries that are out there, they talk about this, was in 2014, Mm -hmm. there was a 6.0 magnitude earthquake and it was the largest in San Francisco since the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. The epicenter was basically to the south of Napa and northwest of the American Canyon. The total damage in Napa Valley and the Vallejo area was about 362 million to 1 billion. 1 billion dollars. 1 million dollars. One person was killed, 200 were injured, and then some of like very well-known wineries incurred damage. So Trefethen, which is very well known. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about that. Okay. So the earthquake itself, it, this is where shitty becomes beneficial in the long run. Okay. Yeah. So shitty, their tasting room and um, some of their production facility, it's this huge house. It's a huge wooden house that had not been touched since it was initially built. So with the earthquake, it actually, the whole thing leaned over, I think like three feet from the top of it. And so they were like, well, fuck, we need to fix this. So it made them have to reinforce it with steel beams. So now it's, I mean, it's magical. It's a gorgeous place. Um, They also, I think because of that, transitioned to sort of where they stored certain parts of production into a different warehouse. But one of the other things that happened is that there was um, this huge oak tree that was in the front of their lawn when you go into their tasting room, and it fell. Because oh, of the earthquake. Yeah. And so they didn't want to get rid of it because it's a huge fucking oak tree that is, that's one of the things that it was known for. Yeah. So they actually cut it and they made it into, they repurposed it into these long, gorgeous tables that spanned the length of the tasting room because it was that long. It was that tall. Yeah. Super cool. They've definitely learned things from it, but that is one of their, that's some of the things that happened because of that particular earthquake. That's really interesting because you have something bad that turned into something great. And you got to see that firsthand. It's silver linings, right? Yeah. I feel like that's 
sort of the whole thing. Um, the other winery was Hess that also suffered damage. Now, if you are into the Psalm documentaries, yes, and you watch, yes. Psalm 2 features Mathiasen and their damage. Which is so fucking crazy because yeah. they just happened to be recording and planning to interview him and then this shit happened. And then this happened. It's crazy. It's insane. And they're a really good winery, so... I bought that wine. I know you did. I had a local wine shop around here. We were there for Slovenian wine tasting, actually. And all of a sudden, I was just perusing the shelves, and I was like, holy crap. They have a 2014 Mathiasen Red. I think it's a cab. I can't remember. So I was like... You had to do it. to buy it. Because they they are pretty expensive, and this was like... I think they're normally like eighty to ninety dollars. I think this was maybe fifty three, and I was like, "This is a steal! I'm gonna get it." You gotta hold on to that one. I'm selling it, but basically, can you describe what we saw in Psalm two? About so, that one? I mean, they just showed it was it was crazy. It looked like what they described, like a huge giant shook the building, mm-hmm. you know. And you have all these barrels just like everywhere, and the wine, and like obviously some of it's ruined and. You know, and you're just like, and and it's their home too. And I mean, it's de- it's devastating watching Absolutely. it. You know, I definitely recommend lo- watching it. I think it's very interesting. And you know, they're like, I guess we just have to rebuild. Like, there's no there's no other thing you can think. Well, except and that's, that. yeah, and that's the other thing that I think is so interesting about the perspective from the winemakers and why I think some I think the some films are all they're all fantastic in their own right right because they all sort of address different issues or different topics within the wine community this some two into the bottle is particularly interesting because you sort of hear from the winemakers perspective and a lot of them come on and say you know we're not really in this to make a shit ton of money we're in this because this is our passion and this is what we like to do right and Particularly for Matthiasen, they, I mean, he's just like, yeah, our chimney came down and we lost a couple things on the side, but overall it will be fine. Yeah, so I mean, we hear one way um, and we, we see, we can actually see in the video, in the movie about how there are certain ways that earthquakes can impact wines and wineries and things like that. But, you know, fires can take on a different path of destruction, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so I mean... And a few different paths. Right. Earthquakes are no joke, obviously. No. I mean, everything can be ruined in just a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. But the thing about fire is that if your grapes are still on the vine... Then you have to think, what does the smoke do to yes. the grapes, right? The exposure of smoke actually can be only detected after production's finished. Shit. So you still have to like go through like fermentation and all that. And then the end result will tell you if it's been damaged by smoke. Oh, that's a really unfortunate. Yeah. So the there's like smoke volatiles that are absorbed when the grapes are on the vine still. And then this is, um, they're transformed into non-volatile metabolites. Okay. And then during fermentation, these are released again because of the yeast. Right. So you really don't know. The the impact. Even if you taste the grape, you're not really going to know if it's, you know, if it's going to, if the smoke has affected your final product. That's something that you probably don't think of. Because I know that one of the main concerns is that, you know, a lot of places nowadays have been saying, with this recent fire, they've been sending emails to like, our harvests are finished, like no worries, which is great. Yeah. There's always concern about the vines themselves. Like, have they been irrigated enough or is there this downward path of the fire, 
you know, going to miss it. That that's what happened in 2017. There were many, many fire or many, many vineyards that were saved because they were so well irrigated that the fire just didn't touch it. It touched around it, but not the actual vines themselves. But it's, it's also important that fire occurred prior to harvest. Right. That's when you need to be concerned about it because you just don't know. Yeah, no, you don't know. And it has a lot to do with environmental conditions like the, the sunlight, what's going on in the atmosphere. I mean, yeah. there's a lot to do with it. And so the worst is if you're about to harvest. I think that's and then this when, happens. yeah. So then you can't even get out there. Right? You don't want to have your staff out there. No. Picking. So, I mean, like, it's smoke taint. Yeah. That's what they call it. But that's unfortunate. And so, just for all you listeners out there, if you see a bottle on sale, and it's like a California bottle that it's a year of a fire, and it's, like, really knocked down, it could be why. Didn't we hear that while we were out in Napa? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You need to be careful. Because it's not for the years of the fires. If you see something and it's been, it's a California wine and it's been really, you know, you might want to just like do a little Google search and kind of check that out first before you purchase it. And I mean, and I mean, if you're reputable, people shouldn't be putting that stuff out there to begin with. Right. But it happens. And I was going to say too, that, you know, doing a Google, but also then checking to see like, if like... Of course, there are wines from California that were 2017 and will be 2019 that are totally going to be fine because it didn't happen in that area. But you may just want to give a, like, like Sarah said, if you have, you know, see something that's like heavily discounted, like suggested retail of 60 marked down to $19. It's like, "Mm, is there a particular reason? What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? The other problem or the other thing that I always think about when this happens, these na- these disasters, whether natural or unnatural, they're colossal in nature, and they greatly impact these somewhat sometimes small vintners. Mm-hmm. And this is their livelihood. So if they don't have a harvest, if they don't have a year that they can produce wine, oh my god, I can't even imagine. It's got to be hard to get insurance. I right. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that when vintners produce wines, I mean, you also think about it, like a 2019 vintage, you're not going to start making money on that until like 2020, oh, yeah. 2021 or beyond. I know. So, well, at least that gives them a little time to figure out what to do. A little bit. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. So but, what do you think of this wine, madame? Dude, I, we are, we're well into this bottle. I mean, I yeah. felt like I was pouring a good sizable second yeah, glass it, it pretty drinkable. early on. It's super drinkable. This is like... I know you described it as like Portugal's red table wine. Red table mm-hmm. wine. Yep, I see that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's I think it's I think it's better than American table wine. And I think this is a wine that you don't you don't actually have to drink it with other with food or anything. No, else. I think it's good on its own. Um, I get a lot of like dark fruits. Yes, lots of dark fruits. I mean, like plummy fruit yeah. notes and stuff like that. So. It's complex. It's rich. I'm digging it. It has that little sweetness, sweet yeah. and savory all together. It's like a great mix. Like my mouth is salivating. It's acidic slightly, but like in a great, great way. It's yeah. so yummy. I don't really want to cheers a colossal disaster, but no. but we can cheers to cheers. this wine. Can we cheers to the people who help overcome colossal disasters? Yeah, okay. All right, everybody, stay safe out there. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.
Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers Cheers from from the the girls of DBP. DBP.